Hey folks, welcome to the Sound of the Program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon on number 403-974-8255. So expect to hear the term or the phrase just transition uh, a lot this year. The Federal Natural Resources Minister has a mandate uh, to bring forward legislation. And Jonathan Wilkinson has made it clear this week that that is the plan. It is a major priority for 2023. Now he calls this as, you know, a need take a step towards sustainable job creation and economic growth in every region of the country. Alberta's premier, though, suggests it's ill-conceived and short-sighted. Jonathan Wilkinson says he wants to see Alberta and Saskatchewan as part of the talks around this proposed legislation. Alberta's premier says she knows nothing of any planned talks. So what does this mean potentially? Right, This is big picture, the move from a fossil fuel economy to a green economy and the impact that's going to have on those who work in our current energy sector. Joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, energy economist, professor of the University of Alberta, Andrew Leach. Professor Leach, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. Happy New Year. Well, to you as well. Appreciate uh, you make some time for us here. Uh, First of all, from your perspective or understanding, what what does we mean by, by just transition? Or what is the mandate here for the Natural Resources Minister? So the term has been around for a while, uh, certainly like mid-2010s. Uh, it was uh, very popular in the U.S. when uh, coal fortunes were declining. And there was a, a push to provide support to workers in affected coal communities, manufacturing communities, less so, but the same kind of push to have government step in to create the types of things that we've done in Canada for a lot of our resource industries, but to do it on a more formal and maybe a larger basis. So that's where the terms come from. It's, you know, certainly more of a, I think more of a popular term, we can use the the distinction on the left and and the labor left right now. Uh, But it was part of Minister Wilkinson's mandate letter to provide federal legislative support or legislative federal support for workers who are displaced in communities that are affected by the current uh, energy transition, not just the change in oil and gas sector fortunes, but also certainly in Atlantic Canada, the move away from coal-fired power generation, et cetera. Right. So does that mean compensating affected workers? Does that mean retraining affected workers? Does it mean some of of both? Or what, what does it mean in practice? It, it means that and more, I think. So it means um, support not just for the workers, but also for the communities to, um, you know, you think of my family's all from northeastern New Brunswick. So we're very familiar with uh, transitions or economic transitions in, in northeastern New Brunswick. And you've seen some ad hoc programs there. For example, the, the firearms registry, I believe, is still in Miramichi, New Brunswick, as is the Phoenix Pay System. So two not particularly popular programs, but they're located in that area in part um, as economic activity and stimulus for a region that saw a huge downturn in its pulp and paper industry and lumber industry. And so I think it's it's formalizing those types of community-based engagement, not simply the, the worker retraining and uh, and retooling. I mean, we've seen in in the past where where one industry emerges, you know, to the detriment of another. There's kind of a, a natural sorting out of all of this. You know, market forces push things in a certain direction. If you know one sector needs workers and another sector finds itself shedding workers, that there would be kind of a, a natural transition. But given the the situation we're dealing with here with the energy transition, 
is there a need for an active government role here? Well, I think that you've hit the nail on the head both in terms of, you know, what we see all the time. And, and I think I was on your show probably close to a decade ago talking about what we then termed the Dutch disease, right? People mm-hmm. that were worried in, in Ontario's manufacturing sector that all the increased resource activity was pulling jobs out of the Ontario economy, making it too expensive to operate there. In Alberta, we looked at it as, you know, as a boom, a construction boom and a production boom. And so that happens all the time. What's challenging about the current situation is you have a mix of global forces, domestic forces, and then you also have the government policies that are at play. So whether it's the electricity uh, regulation, changing generation mix, now we're talking about oil and gas emissions cap, carbon pricing, et cetera, where it's the government policies themselves that uh, create some of this churn in the economy. And so there, I think there's an enhanced role for the government to play to make sure that you buffer people as much as you can against those consequences. But it also makes it hard for governments because who is a worker that's affected by the policy versus the global economy versus simply bad management or um, an unlucky situation or what have you? Who do you offer these supports to when it's something as broad as an energy transition? Right. I mean, it's, is there an argument to be made here that there's almost a, an obligation then uh, on Ottawa's part that if we're going down this path, that some level of support be there for those who are affected? Yeah, I, I think there is a, an obligation, which is why it's in the, in the mandate letter. Uh, but I think, again, to put the challenge on it, it's how do you, as the federal government, treat individuals who are in very similar circumstances, potentially for slightly different reasons, do you treat them very differently? And And I'd look back to... Um, 2015-16 in Alberta when, for example, the coal phase that was announced here, and that was a program that was, you know, multiple years down the road before we expected any coal plants to transition um, away. We were told that there would not be coal to gas conversions. And yet there was still a very strong push for a government program to help those workers. But at that time, you know, we all remember how challenged the oil and gas sector was in 2015-16. There were workers in desperate situation right then saying, you know, where's the government to help me? Yeah. And where's my program? And and so I think you're going to see that um, as well in this situation. But that's that was a different kind of timeline. Is is the timeline here at all comparable? Or, or I mean, what are we looking at? Well, I think the, the timeline, again, is, is similar probably to the coal phase that we're talking about policies that you know have end goals in the 2030s but that are going to start having effects or that have already started to have effects on some businesses and some individuals and some career paths are certainly not the same as they were you know 5 10 15 years ago um and you know we see it for example, at the university in terms of what programs are offered, what programs are popular, uh, what co-op placements are available. We're already seeing those types of changes. But the people who went through those programs five years ago that had the co-op jobs and the opportunities, they're not seeing the same maybe career potential always um, as as they thought they were going to see. So I think there's already changes afoot that can be helped by this. But I would caution that the government really can't, you know, you talked about the big economic forces that drive these transitions. It's pretty hard for the government to get in and make water run uphill, so to speak, at the type of 
scale and scope that a that a economic boom can. So we shouldn't expect that the government policy can make things perfect for everybody. By no means at all. Right, and even though we haven't seen you know jobs in in oil and gas return to you know where they were in say 2014. Uh, there are a lot of Canadians who work in oil and gas, a lot of folks in Alberta who work in oil and gas. There is really nothing of, of scale or comparable, is there, when we talk about green energy or, you know, alternative energy. There, there's not the same level of, of jobs or wealth there. The amount of, you know, the thing of the foreign direct investment that was piling into Alberta and the domestic investment that was piling into Alberta in the, in the 2010s, there's nothing like that happening um, anywhere in Canada for, for any industry. And so that's going to be difficult to replicate. <clears throat> that said, um, the, you know, the unique, the, a lot of the roles in the oil and gas sector and the skills are not specific to oil and gas. There are certainly some that are very specific to oil and gas, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of um, support work and a lot of site work and a lot of uh, engineering and design and project management and um, roles of that nature that are very easily translated, not just to other energy sector roles, but to um, roles more broadly in the economy. So there are opportunities there, but you're right. There's not a, it's not like when the Ontario manufacturing industry was in crisis and the Alberta industry was booming. There isn't somebody waiting necessarily saying, okay, anybody that uh, finds themselves without a job in Northern Alberta right now, they could easily move to X and find a job easily. That's not that's not the case. So is this part premature? Is this putting the card before the horse? Or is this, you know, a necessary sort of laying of the, of the groundwork here for what's coming eventually? I, I think we have to see what's in the legislation. So I, I like the idea of having um, government policies available. My concern and part of why I think it's important for the premier to be at the table is and for Alberta in general to be at the table is you don't want this to be a uh, you know sort of a sovereign ointment that says you know everything will be fine and and that you hear that the language used oh don't worry we'll create a just transition mm-hmm. as though you can keep everybody whole and nobody should really be worried and as I think that's you know as I said why Alberta needs to be there to say no you know even if there are green energy jobs in Lethbridge, that doesn't help the person who's in Fort McMurray. Right. And if you help the oil sands worker in Fort McMurray, it's not just the oil sands workers who are in Fort McMurray. It's nurses, it's um, city employees, it's sports facility operators, it's Mitchell sandwiches, right? It, it's, it's not just the people who work in oil and gas that are affected by this. And, and those types of things, to give someone kind of a, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, little lie, so to speak, that they can tell themselves. I think you want the premier and the province at the table to say, no, that's that's not what's going to happen here. Well, and this is obviously going to be very politically charged, and there's the question of, you know, to what extent Alberta can shape this or to whether Alberta should even bother trying in the first place. You think there's there's some value, though? Oh, I think we absolutely need to be at the table, and I think this is actually, and I know it's not going to be a popular position, in Alberta today, but I think this is a place where uh, both Premier Notley, or former Premier Notley and current Premier Smith will have some common ground in that, you know, Premier Notley coming from a labor background is going to understand exactly how these programs can work and how they don't necessarily always work well. Uh, Premier Smith 
needs to realize that she's not just speaking to Albertans in this, she's speaking to the rest of Canadians. And it's really, for some of them, the first file on which she's really going to be in their living room. She's really going to be on stage to say, how does she think about Alberta's industry in a world acting on climate change? And former Premier Notley faced that challenge in 2015-16. So there is some opportunity here, and I think this is maybe one of those files where, um, you know, we talk about a Team Canada approach when we go to the United States or elsewhere, but I think, and I hope it's one of those files that there can be a little bit more collaboration amongst our provincial politicians uh, to get some of the right outcomes that we need in Ottawa. We'll see. It's going to be an interesting year on this file for sure. Andrew Leach, appreciate yeah, I'm not the on it, but we'll <laughs> exactly. see what happens. Appreciate the the insight and perspective. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you so much. Cheers. Uh, there you go, Andrew Leach, uh, energy economist, a professor at the University of Alberta. His thoughts on some of these some of these big questions about the uh, so called just transition and what that might look like, how Alberta might shape that. <laughs> Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brigginridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. Lots still to get to. We'll get back to some of your phone calls and your texts as well. But do want to talk about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky yesterday tweeting that he had a substantive conversation with Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Says we discussed strengthening Ukraine's defense capabilities in the face of threats and risk of escalation at the front. Express gratitude for the strong support of Ukraine by Canada. Agreed on steps to implement the peace formula. So the question, I guess, moving forward, uh, what does a peace formula look like? What does a victory at this point for Ukraine look like? What does defeat for Russia need to look like? Also today, Russia confirming that now 89 of its troops were killed in a Ukrainian rocket strike uh, in the Moscow-controlled parts uh, of the Donetsk region, uh, suggesting that unauthorized use of cell phones by conscripts uh, was the uh, main reason for the successful attack. And it just speaks to the uh, the setbacks that Russia continues to suffer in Ukraine despite attempts to escalate by drawing thousands and thousands of more conscripts uh, into this uh, invasion. You know, we're a long way from where we were in uh, February of last year when this invasion began. And, of course, the Russian hopes and, and the fear for the rest of us that uh, Russia might succeed. That clearly hasn't happened. 2023, uh, therefore, is going to be a consequential year for this whole situation and ultimately for Ukraine's future and as our next guest writes for Europe's future as well. He also writes Putin tried to kill Ukraine and failed soon he will reap what he has sown. So how are we feeling about this whole situation as we head into a new year and almost the one year anniversary of this invasion? Joining us on the line uh, is the author of this speech, which, uh, piece, which you can find up at nationalpost.com. Uh, Lubomir Lusiak, a professor of political geography at the Royal Military College of Canada. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, 2022 came to a close with these remarkable scenes of Ukraine's president in Washington, D.C., speaking to Congress, meeting with the president. It was hugely symbolic. Uh, is there a lot of reason for optimism now as we begin a new year? Well, optimism, yes, in the sense that Ukraine has demonstrated that it is unwilling to bow to Moscow's imperial project, that Ukraine can resist with Western aid, as you pointed out that Ukrainian uh, military forces have been able, man for man, to best the Russians in the field. Uh, You can toss all the conscripts you want and all the convicts you want at at Ukraine and and mercenaries as well, and yet battle after battle, 
despite losses on their side too, of course, the Ukrainians have held their own and are recovering territory that was stolen from them starting in 2014, but of course escalating since February of last year. Um, so I think 2023 will see the victory of Ukraine. Uh, it will see the defeat of the KGB man in the Kremlin, of the Putin regime, probably his death and that of uh, his immediate entourage, uh, and potentially even the dismemberment of the Russian Federation as we know it today. So this has been a, a badly conceived and executed uh, attempt to expand the borders of the Russian state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will have consequences, as you point out, uh, that will be far-reaching for not only Ukraine, but for Europe. Right, and I think those are by and large positive consequences. I mean, further instability <laughs> well, in I'm Russia. Well, I'm not going to argue with it. No, you're right. right. You're right. I mean, there, there are some unintended consequences, I suppose, of, of all of that unfolding in Russia in terms of instability, in terms of who or what might replace Putin. I mean, you know, some of that should still concern us, but this is still obviously the outcome we, we are hoping for here. Well, look, I, for Decades as a professor looking at these kinds of questions, I always hoped that one day Russians as a nation would join Europe. I said that year after year after year, arguing that uh, Russia as a culture is European. the biggest disappointment for me since 2014, but obviously more recently in, in, in a very particular way, is that Russians have turned their back on Europe, whereas Ukraine has turned toward Europe. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is trying to resume its rightful place in Europe, and meanwhile, Putin and his clique, his confederates, are trying to claim that they have some kind of Eurasian civilization, that, that they're different, that they don't belong. They've demonstrated racism and homophobia in their, in their comments and, of course, imperial aggression toward neighbors. It's very sad. And I, and I frankly, as much as the battlefield defeats of Russia are something that I welcome, um, you know, how can I put it? I'm, it's not the word disappointed is the wrong word, but I'm, I'm sad to think that what Putin has done is excise Russia from a civilized company, from the international rules-based order. I think Russia should be expelled from the Security Council of the United Nations. I mean, Russia as a state can remain in the General Assembly, it should, but no longer in the Security Council. It's demonstrated it doesn't belong there. Uh, I think the Russians will have to pay extraordinary reparations, so all Russians will be affected by that. Uh, All Russian troops need to be removed from Ukrainian soil. Uh, there has to be uh, a war crimes proceeding. I mean, there will be trials. Uh, you know, I was sitting there thinking to myself the other night, you know, will Putin blow his brains out, uh, you know, a la Hitler? Uh, what will happen to Lavrov? What will happen to some of these uh, people who have advocated for basically the genocide of the Ukrainian nation and for the extinction of the Ukrainian state? I mean, these, these are war criminals. And... Mm-hmm. You don't have to believe Lubomir Lachuk because you can say, well, he's biased, but let's listen to what President Biden said. He called him a war criminal. So at the highest levels of every Western government of the free world, if I can call it that, there's this consensus that Ukraine exists, that Ukrainians exist as a nation, that they are not Russians, and that Ukraine should never have been invaded nor attacked for uh, the kind of base purposes that Putin articulated back in February, you know, the, removing Nazis from Ukraine. I mean, everybody laughed at that. I mean, mm-hmm. I've met President Zelensky. He's of Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. He has, uh, you know, 
he's about as far away from a Nazi as you can get. And yet this kind of ludicrous crime was, was put out there, or the story that you know, NATO is expanding and threatening Russia. I mean, uh, this is a misrepresentation. Poland went and joined NATO because it wanted to. The same thing with Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. That was the East coming West, not the West coming East. Um, if NATO was expansionist, it would have offered Ukraine NATO membership a long time ago, and yet it demurred, it, it delayed, etc., etc. Now I hope, of course, one of the consequences of the war is that Ukraine will not only be part of the EU, but part of NATO. But that wasn't NATO expansion to the East, it was the East running West. And, you know, as I say, there was a time when I had hoped that Russia, as a civilization and as a culture, would uh, join Europe. I think it's now uh, not likely to do that anytime soon, and the Russian Federation, as we know it, will disappear. I mean, yeah, it's not just the failure in Ukraine. It's that, that whole broader you know, geopolitical catastrophe where... You know, Eastern Europe is now Europe. It's it's yeah. been pushed in that direction. I mean, you know, NATO is is strengthened, is more unified, is growing. Yeah. Finland, like, think of Finland, well, think Finland, of Sweden. Yeah. You know, I think think of countries that wanted to be neutral, uh, that wanted to stay out of this. Um, but that's you know, it's a remember like a year ago we were all saying, well, the West is sort of collapsing. We're losing faith in in liberal democracy. We're losing faith in our values and and who we are. You know, and I'm not saying the West is perfect. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying America is wonderful and it's you know, but it is the leader of the free world. Okay, and we're part of that free world, and so is the United Kingdom, and so is France and Italy and so on. The West is now more united. The free world is now more united than ever. Those who are standing on the side, and again, I'm, I'm dismayed at the behavior of countries like India, you know, largest democracy in the world, as we like to refer to it, I've been there several times. I'm sad to think that the government of India is, is, is sort of standing by and not doing anything. I'm not surprised that China isn't, because, of course, it's, it's a dictatorship as well. But, you know, you, you look at the world we live in now, and... In some ways, it's safer. Everyone says, oh, my God, there could be a nuclear war. There's not going to be a nuclear war. Putin would be dead if he tried that. But there's a world now that is saying, look, we do have shared values, and we're not perfect, but we can actually be grateful for what we are and who we are and how we slowly, incrementally, too slowly in some cases, evolve and become better as, as societies. And we represent goodness you know i know it sounds so it sounds so corny but we are the good guys yeah. right we are and be grateful for it you can look at our historical record and you can say well this was wrong and this was wrong and this was wrong but wow um you, you, if you think it's better somewhere else tell me where because i don't see it okay. so i you know i think europe is stronger nato is stronger um, the free world is stronger. We have trials and tribulations ahead. So does Ukraine in particular. Ukraine standing on the very edge of this and absorbing great, you know, uh, pain to sort of survive. But it will survive. You know, the, the, the piece that I wrote that you're referring to, you know, the national anthem of Ukraine, you know, Ukraina, the, the glory and power of Ukraine have not yet perished. That's the kind of resilience, if you like, that that Ukrainians have demonstrated. When I was a boy, people said, what's a Ukrainian? I mean, I know in Western Canada, that's probably not the question people talked about, but here in Central Canada, people said, what's a Ukrainian? Don't know what that is. Where are they from? Who are they? You're just little Russians and all that. Well, not now. Yep. Now, 
everyone knows what a Ukrainian is. You know, blue and yellow is the color of courage. I mean, my neighbors who are Scottish have a Ukrainian flag flying. I mean, what's that? Um, that's a, a remarkable transformation, a remarkable recognition of what is important in life and what people should stand up for and what and what we are as human beings you know supporting governments that are trying to do better and again i've been in ukraine many times it's far from perfect it's far from perfect you know it's got corruption not that other countries don't but you know it's got its corruptions it's got its problems it's got its political tensions and all regional dissent and all that kind of stuff like just about every other place i've ever been but it was certainly heading toward europe and that's what putin didn't want didn't want ukraine to be part of the european community because the values and the liberal democratic principles that underwrite that civilization are absolutely anathema to a man who you know is a third-generation Soviet secret policeman. His grandfather served Stalin. His father served Stalin in the NKVD. He was in the KGB. These are people who um, have a profoundly different view of the world than you and I do. And now, again, it's a little—it's too much to say they're evil, but they're not good people. I think that's and, true. And mm-hmm. you know, so. Um, you know, you, you take a look at Zelensky, and I've called him today in that column. I called him Ukraine's Moses. I mean, <laughs> you know, we can laugh about him. Oh, the comedian, yeah. Well, look at what he has become. Look at what he has become. He is leading his people away from the pharaoh in Moscow toward a promised land, right? The promised land of Europe. And it's not going to be perfect. They're going to wander in the desert and all that kind of good stuff. But the reality of it is. They're on their way, and no one will ever, ever, ever again say Ukrainians are just little Russians or Ukrainians and Russians are the same people, same culture or something. It's, it's that, that divorce, if you like, is cemented for all time. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what unfolds in the weeks and months ahead here. Uh, Professor Luchuk, appreciate uh, your insight on all of this. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Afternoon. Thanks for having me. All the best. Good day. Uh, professor Lubomir uh, Luchuk is a uh, professor of political geography, Royal Military College of Canada. You can find his piece up at nationalpost.com. An interesting look at you know what's been achieved so far and, and where this all goes from here. Welcome back. Well, 2023 may or may not deliver a federal election. Uh, I don't know. I'm almost kind of feeling like it could, but uh, who knows? But there, there is the question, I guess, of, you know, just how polarized our politics is. I mean, we see a lot of polarization south of the border, and I think that's probably a, a fair perception. But are we seeing it here? Right. I mean, are we seeing a greater polarization in politics? Some interesting new research out of the Association for Canadian Studies helps to answer the question. That, yeah, you've got a lot of Canadians who place themselves on the political right. You've got a lot of Canadians who place themselves on the political left. But the biggest number, it seems, represent those who place themselves in the middle, in the center. Uh, Joining us to talk about these uh, findings, what they tell us about the state of politics uh, in Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jack Jedwab, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. Jack, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here, Robin. Happy New Year. Yeah, to you as well. I appreciate this. Uh, let me ask, first of all, why it, it matters, why it's important, I guess, to kind of understand the, the lay of the land and how Canadians feel about themselves and, and their politics. Well, I think it gives us an interesting snapshot of who we are as a country and talks to our identities and, and how we evaluate issues and how politically engaged we are or not. 
Uh, it's a very detailed uh, analysis and survey, so it's not just uh, situating Canadians as they evaluate themselves across that spectrum from right to left, but also looking at how that relates to political affiliation and how uh, being on one or another end of the spectrum uh, gives you an idea or or shows you where people stand on a selected number of issues that we inquired into. Mm-hmm. I mean, unsurprisingly, you know, obviously viewpoints in Canada do, you know, cover the, the whole political spectrum, but uh, what, what stands out to you in terms of the findings here? Uh, well, there are a number of things that stand out in terms of uh, comparisons, which we do with the United States. You can see that Americans are more inclined, at least uh, not in the majority, but a significantly greater minority of Americans are more inclined to define themselves being on the right as opposed to Canadians. So about one in six Americans do that. About one in 20 Canadians say they're on the right. And then we've got those shades of right, right of center, mm-hmm. center left of center and left and so for the most part canadians will say they're center right of center left of center not so much on those uh, uh opposite ends if you'd like of right and left uh of that spectrum uh what also interested me and i've tried to probe further into who the individuals are say they don't know where they situate themselves that's a much larger percentage in canada than the united states almost one in four wow. say that they don't know uh where they would situate themselves uh and Another 10% say they prefer not to answer, which is also higher than what you see in the United States. So I'm trying to understand by doing further research whether that's a reflection of people being less politically engaged or literate as in here in Canada as they are in the United States. You know, maybe more apathetic, perhaps? I mean, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, sure. But in terms, I mean, in terms of polarization, then, is it fair to say that, that Canadian politics are or seem less polarized than American politics? Yeah, I, I would I would say that's the case, particularly when you look at the patterns of how people situate themselves across that spectrum. And even though uh, the largest plurality of Americans do situate themselves in the center, you've got a fair number situating themselves right and right of center in the United States relative to the case in Canada. Uh, and that seems to create more polarization. Even on the left, you have more Americans, about 12%, saying that uh, they're on the left, whereas 9.3% of Canadians say that. So that kind of surprised me. But it speaks to the polarization in that country that's greater. And that may be uh, as, as challenging as polarization is and, 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 and worrisome, I would think. Uh, one of the reasons that people are more engaged in the United States, or at least appear to be more engaged, less of them say they don't know where they stand and less say they prefer not to answer because that polarization is probably contributing to people feeling more engaged. What is the correlation between, you know, how people identify their own politics and, you know, the political brand they associate with or whether there's any kind of party loyalty that results from that? Is there a direct correlation that we see here? There are some correlations in the case of uh, the Federal Liberal Party, for example. I was a bit surprised at the extent to which they're proportionally more inclined to situate themselves on the left than some people might have expected because we understand or are led to think that the Liberals are a party that's really the centrist party. They actually have, along with the Bloc Québécois and the Green Party, the highest percentage of people that situate themselves in the centre, right at about sort of 30%. But then they've got about 33% that say they're left or left of centre and about 16% that say they're right or right of centre. So clearly the Liberals' constituency is one that's going to seek to govern a bit more from the left and look more at scratching away at the NDP support, which they've you know, been attempting to do, I think, in previous elections as uh, their formula for success. In the case of the Conservatives, uh, some 48%, 15% say they're on the right, another 32% right of centre, uh, clearly far more to the right in terms of where they situate themselves, but not as far to the right as the People's Party of Canada, uh, at least on the sort of harder right of the spectrum. So that's where I think the Conservatives may look to try to uh, gain some support uh, in order to help them uh, you know, seek, uh, seek some success in, another, in the next election.
Yeah, and, and that maybe a lot of that, that election is going to be fighting over the center, or, or do you think it should be? Yeah, I, I suspect it will. And, and a high, relatively important percentage of conservatives also position themselves at the center, about 28%, so not yeah. far from the liberals. And so, you know, there, there's going to be some movement in that particular area. And, and, and I think both parties are going to, or all parties are going to try to see where the people say they don't know end up uh, landing uh, when it comes to the election. And so it's important if I were a strategist to, to try to understand, you know, where those people position themselves on a whole range of issues. I've looked at that. Uh, on immigration issues that people say they don't know or prefer not to answer, look a bit more right of center, but on other issues they don't. In terms of, you know, geographical differences, uh, you know, there's a perception, for example, maybe Alberta's a little more conservative than the rest of the country. Maybe uh, our neighbors to the west are a little more left-wing than, than other parts of the country. I don't know. Some of the, those those stereotypes seem born true by by this research. A little bit, not as much as I thought, actually, because in Alberta, sort of uh, 23% or thereabouts position themselves either right or right of center. Uh, that was more than the 18% that put themselves on the left or left of center. Uh, but still, 31% put themselves in the middle. I suspect some of the people who say they don't know maybe a bit more on the right uh, uh, when I probed into who they were. In BC, it's very different. Uh, you know, the very high percentage of people are putting themselves on the left. It's uh, uh, 30% left of center or left in BC. Uh, so it corresponds to some of the generalizations we hear about BC and about Alberta, but not as in Alberta, not as much as as, as some people might uh, observe when looking from outside Alberta. Very interesting. We'll leave it there, Jack. I appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. No problem, Rob. You take care. Cheers. You as well. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Jack Jedwan, president of the Association for Canadian Studies. So an interesting look at kind of how Canadians perceive their own politics. And you know what it tells about about the state of politics in this country. So overall, more Canadians would identify themselves as kind of center, even center right or center left, uh, than they would just saying I'm on the right or on the left. You see higher numbers in the U.S. when it comes to both of those, you know, the right and the left. So maybe more of that polarization in the U.S. Um, so look, I mean, not not a surprise that Canadians you know don't agree on politics. There's some division in politics. There always will be, and there probably should be. Um, but it is interesting to see, you know, more Canadians sort of placing themselves in the center. Now, look, obviously people who say they're in the center aren't in agreement on everything. And someone who says I'm center right would probably see things a lot differently than someone who says they're center left. And maybe by identifying themselves as center right or center left, it's also a way of sort of saying I, I'm, I'm not part of any kind of a political tribe, right? I'm not beholden to, uh, you know, any political movement or party or leader, that I tend to lean a certain way, but maybe it also speaks to more independence, per se. Uh, but there is a correlation here, obviously. Uh, you have 34% of uh, people who say they would vote liberal would identify themselves as being on the left. 48% of those who say they would support the conservatives would identify themselves as being on the right. But at the same time, you know, you get 28% who say they would vote conservative, say they have centrist views. 30% or so, uh, same thing with the Liberals. So where's the next election going to be fought? If the Conservatives are going to defeat the Liberals, where do they need to go? Do they need to win over these center voters? Are there enough voters on the right that haven't voted Conservative that could be brought into the camp? Uh, I think there's an opportunity here, clearly, for Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives to, to win the next election, whenever that happens to be, but that's not a guarantee either. The other thing is, I think if, you know, there's a lot of issues that have come up over the last couple of years, that weren't necessarily on the political radar a few years ago. So, you know, what makes somebody a conservative or, or a liberal or on the right or on the left? Has that changed a bit? 
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.